3: That is not the drug problem. That is, in fact, the drug policy problem.
2: I speak tonight for the dignity Dignity of man.
0: Dignity. That's one thing that uh, public education is good for. Recognize the dignity of all people. That's one thing that is kind of unique to a democracy. Democracy and public education absolutely go hand in hand. You can't have... Democracy without a robust, strong, relatively equitable uh, education. Hierarchical systems of white male domination are, of course, aggressively against such widespread equitable education, especially of girls of color. In the fall of 2015, a, you may remember a video went viral showing a black high school girl named Shakara thrown from her desk and dragged across the classroom floor by a sheriff deputy. And while there was a huge and appropriate outcry against that and the deaths and abuse of young black men like Trayvon Martin and Tamar Rice, cases like Shakira's often go under the radar and the criminalization of black girls in high school remains way too pervasive. While girls of color make up About 16% of female students, black girls, make up more than a third of all girls with the school-related arrest. Something's not right here. They are often fed into the horrible schools-to-prison pipeline, which we're going to talk about somewhat today. Clearly harmful but pervasive beliefs and policies push these kids out of schools and into unhealthy and unstable futures helping no one, undermining democracy, undermining our republic. Of this new book, Push Out, the Criminalization of Black Girls in Schools, Gloria Steinem writes, If you ever doubted that supremacy crimes, those devoted to maintaining hierarchy, are rooted in both sex and race, read Push Out. Monique Morris tells us exactly how schools are crushing the spirit and talent That this country needs. End of quote from uh, Gloria Steinem. Monique Morris is co founder of the National Black Women's Justice. Uh, She has been working in the areas of education, civil rights, and social justice for more than 20 years and is author of Black Stats. In addition to her new book, Push Out, The Criminalization of Black Girls in Schools. Ma- Monique Morris, thanks so much for being with us on Keeping Democracy Alive. What was your purpose in writing this book?
1: I wrote Push Out primarily to explore uh, an issue of that, in my experience, and my work, had been really under-theorized uh, in the conversations, the national discourses about school-to-confinement pathways, about the experiences of young people and particularly about what was driving black girls to experience a disparate impact and, and rate of contact with disciplinary practices in schools and also the criminal and juvenile legal system.
0: There's so much focus on the you know, police abuse and murder of, of young black unarmed men. We're missing about the zero tolerance criminalizing policies that affect black girls.
1: What we've been missing in this discussion about uh, criminalization, and the reason I wanted to focus specifically on black girls, is the issue that uh, you raise about the way in which we've constructed a public narrative about well-being that is primarily about whether uh, individual men and boys' bodies have been affected um, by law enforcement, in particular uh, you know, the the ways in which we've seen you know, some very egregious cases play mm-hmm. out in the public domain and public spaces regarding the um, fatal uh, interactions with law enforcement and, and black men and boys. Yes. And yet when we talk about experiences of girls, we, we tend to, or when we talk about uh, experiences regarding safety, we tend to only construct it in this way. And so we fail to see the centrality of trauma, the uh, experiences with uh, other forms of victimization and abuse that are informed by a consciousness uh, that, that really is, uh, I guess, facil- facilitating our inability to see girls. When we talk about the school-to-prison pipeline, one of the reasons that um, I reframe this entire discussion to talk about it primarily as school-to-confinement pathways is to recognize mm-hmm. that there's not a linear process involved when we're talking about the experiences of our children who are at risk of criminalization So, who are at risk of policies or, or uh, being on the receiving end of policies, practices, and a prevailing consciousness that accepts punishment and uh, uh, really harsh engagement mm-hmm. uh, as an appropriate response to their mistakes um, in almost every scenario. <laughs> and so, um, you know, I want to make sure in this conversation that we're clearly able to see, again, the ways in which there is a priming for victimization that occurs among girls that there's a different way in which we can come to understand how girls are pushed away from schools, that render them vulnerable to participation in underground economies mm. that then renders them vulnerable to contact with the criminal and juvenile legal systems. So it's important for us to you know really reframe the entire conversation um, using a different lens that allows for us to explore not just the extent to which our, we, we find bodies, uh, you know, laying in streets, right. to the extent to which we also see bodies put out on streets uh, in mm. ways that can uh, increase their vulnerability uh, and risk of not just uh, fatal engagement with the state, but also, you know, extreme um, continued cycles of poverty and other forms of victimization that disproportionately impact black girls.
0: Interesting. And I can see how, with, with you know, with a murder case, with a Tamar Rice or the Trayvon Martin, there's a specific, you know, obviously horrible incident that we can easily point to. And perhaps instead of long-term traumatization, uh, you know, built up over time, you can say, look, this was the bad moment. This was the the, uh, crime that happened to you. Whereas, if I hear you right, what you're saying about the girls' situation, it's kind of being under the radar, it's uh, long-term, and potentially, uh, you know, if if it slips under the radar, what does that do to, to the girls and to the communities in which they live? I, I can see how that would be uh, possibly even more challenging to deal with.
1: Yeah, one of the things that I say, and when I talk to girls, especially, and when I talk to communities that interface with girls, I say that you know, for many, in many ways, to be ignored is traumatic. Right. And when you, uh, when I have engaged with girls to talk to them about their educational stories, about their experiences um, with the juvenile legal system, and also within schools, um, there's this way in which the consciousness of really centering only the experiences of boys. Has masculinized the conversation to an extent that girls often struggle to even see themselves as impacted by this issue. So when I talk to them about you know what their experiences have been or what it's like in school, they can automatically point to the situations involving boys, and it takes a while for them to understand that they too have been impacted by this and that they are worthy of our in, in investment and that they are worthy of our community's concern. Um, and so. That is you know really a fundamental point that I'm challenging with push out by centering, you know, in many ways unapologetically black girls in this discussion. It is not to say that other communities are not affected by punishment in schools or by punitive policies that um, you know I, I feel are egregious and unnecessary <laughs> in us in our learning spaces, but it is to point out the ways in which black girls are disproportionately impacted, right the ways mm. in which They are overrepresented in all categories um, that explore discipline, um, and really the ways in which, um, you know, our our consciousness and understanding about identity in schools uh, renders them particularly vulnerable, not that they're the only
2: vulnerable community,
1: because certainly we do see elevated rates of discipline being experienced, um, you know, by black boys, by Latino boys, and, you know, Native American boys and girls, you know, we see the children of color are disproportionately impacted particularly those in high poverty schools Uh, but we also see that in all categories for which data are collected by the u.s. department of education office of civil rights we see black girls being the only group of girls who are disproportionately represented there in, in all categories and so when we look at this this trend i think it's important for us to continue to explore you know what it is why this is happening you know what it is that's driving this uh, experience and what failures are facilitating our silence Mm. around this issue.
0: Failures, boy, that is for sure. And I I heard a long time ago a, a local police chief say that he considered an arrest a failure. And yet yeah. they happen all the time, especially, yeah. uh, and we're, as we're describing it here. If you just tuned in to Keeping Democracy Alive, Burt Cohen here. Our guest today is Monique Morris, author of the new book, Push Out, The Criminalization of Black Girls in School. And I can tell you, as a father of two teenage girls who happen to be white, identity, it's its extremely difficult anyway in so many different ways to get the attention, uh, the appropriate amount—not too much, not too little—it's uh, it's a very very tough time for for girls in high school, and then to push this stuff on top of that—it's just criminal, really. I, I, I think, and I, uh, you were about to yeah, say something. I struggle
1: some, with that too. I'm a parent of girls. <laughs> and, yeah. Um. You know, I look at girls. I was a girl in school, and I think about, you know, the ways in which, you know, we've constructed learning spaces now to be primarily about punishment, and that's what makes Uh. the girls are are communicating with me and that I share in the book, uh, that, you know, when we talk about um, ways in which we're policing behaviors, particularly around that dress code, that's one that does absolutely uniquely impact girls. And disproportionately black girls, where their bodies are policed in a manner that uh, leads them to believe in many spaces that their, uh, you know, way of dressing is inferior or inappropriate, girls are literally turned away from school in a way that suggests to them and to us that their education is secondary to their appearance. And there's this way in which we've engaged, uh, you know, black girls in particular, uh, in a way that, that reflects our public misunderstanding or misperception about femininity, that, um, you know, we've we've come to understand black femininity in particular as being, you know, sort of deposited in these categories that align with them being either hypersexual or conniving or loud or sassy, and they internalize Mm -hmm. these ideas, and, you know, our policies reflect these ideas when we push them out. And there's also, you know, when you add race to the equation, you know, one of the things that I I talk about in Push Out is this uh, way in which we've got to understand the identity and the consciousness of black girls, not just through a gender lens or through a race lens, but to engage what Kimberly Crenshaw has called an intersectional lens that provides us with a greater opportunity to um, you know, really explore the relationships between these identities and how it impacts their experiences with this institution, this educational institution. And you know, one of the things that you know I call attention to is really the way in which the legacy of slavery and you know what I call segregated opportunity mm-hmm. has socialized us to believe that punishment and discipline um, is an appropriate response to you know what we consider to be bad behavior among girls or girls who rebel against normative ideas about proper feminine behavior. And these are things that we have to explore. Um, You know, many of us tend to write it off as, well, they broke the rules, or they're not listening, or these are bad girls, or these are problematic girls, or I don't know what to do with the girls. I hear that all the time. And it's important for us not to to be dismissive in this conversation to say, oh, those were bad girls, and so, you know, they don't belong here, um, but to really explore why we have constructed them as bad, what is it about the behavior or the, or the way in which they're presenting in school that makes us as adults or our institutions uncomfortable? What is it about our institutions or our pedagogy that needs to change or shift in order to explore what it is that we're communicating with these girls and how we're going to engage them as learners in a space, regardless of how they present, how we see their promise no matter how they come to school? <laughs> so it's important you know, I think for us to check ourselves in this conversation and really to think about what we're doing when we turn a girl away from school. Um, one of the things mm-hmm. that I've been repeating in, in these conversations about a push that I really hope readers get and that your listeners get, Bert, is that education is a critical protective factor against contact with the juvenile and criti- and criminal legal system. Mm. It's a critical protective factor. Which means when we remove education as a core part of a girl's experience no, then we have already set her up for failure we've increased her risk of being in contact with the juvenile legal system and it's important for us if we're going to say that we're a society that really is about reducing contact and you know uh, trying to minimize the failures that you know your local police officer or sheriff uh, ex- explored when you talked about an arrest it's, it's important for us to understand if we're gonna reduce the number of failures that we have in our society, then we have to increase the number of girls who are participating in whole ways in school. And so any mm. policy, practice, or consciousness that turns girls away um, from school for issues or for, for behaviors or for uh, you know, clothing yeah. that uh, we have subjectively constructed as problematic, we've got to explore. We've got to remedy this issue and so you know that's really the call
0: to action in this in this conversation and you know i i i can it sounds like much of what we're doing in the public schools with these girls in particular is sort of churning out failures like creating a failure machine by setting up these these expectations and having it as you say based on punishment and the, the whole punishment culture is is just huge and it's very different from a justice System, a punishment system it, it it achieves very different results than what than what we are trying to do uh, l- Let me ask about about dressing standards. What about, isn't it the case that if a girl is dressing what some people might label provocatively, then that detracts from the education of other students and that there have to be standards for for dress in school, being respectful and focusing on education. How do you uh, respond to that?
1: I think that, uh, in in my mind, a dress code um, and other codes of conduct uh really need to be co constructed with young people. Ah, there a good are idea. examples and, and these are the cases mm. you know that I explore in the book. There are examples of girls who arrive in school in what might be universally accepted as provocative or that might at least be universally accepted by adults as provocative um, to a great extent. Um however, there's a differential implementation of the dress code that renders ah. black girls uniquely vulnerable to school push out. So there are cases where Girls described coming to school in the exact same clothing as her whiter Asian counterpart and being turned away. Oh my. So, a girl mm. will describe coming to school in short shorts because it's a really hot day. And because it's a hot day, she's wearing shorts that allow her skin to breathe, right? And so she arrives in the shorts and she stopped at the front desk and she said she watched a girl in the exact same clothes um, be able to go, a, a, a white girl in this case able to go into class and pursue her day as normal. No one questioned the shorts on her. Mm. And it was really about how her body looked in the shorts, not necessarily that the shorts were on her. And the other girl was allowed to go to school and this girl was not. And so repeatedly, this is something that has come out in city after city after city that I have visited both in preparation for push out, but also in my other work exploring just the experiences of girls. And it's Something that is highly problematic to me in how uh, there is this way in which, you know, if a tank top is worn by one girl, it's seen as problematic, and if it's worn by another, it's not. Mm. And again, this is where I'm saying that we're responding and constructing policies and practices um, in ways that reflect our own misunderstanding right. about the identities of girls. For one girl to be seen as sexual, to me, let's put it this way, to me there's nothing sexy about a little girl in a tank top, <laughs> okay?
0: you, know, you would no think, matter really. It doesn't matter
1: what her body looks like. She's right. a little girl in right. a tank top. Right. And so if we respond to the body of one girl as being sexy, we got to ask ourselves why yeah. we see it as sexy. Ooh. By whose standards are we engaging this conversation? How is that somehow protective of her when we haven't engaged in conversations with the entire student body about respect and about engagement with individuals rather than objectification? And so it's really, wow. you know, these, I mean, these are, these are bigger issues yes. than, you know, certainly what, um, you know, one individual might take on in, in, in a particular, you know, case involving discipline. But it's something that forces us to really look at how we are constructing Yes. A narrative and how we are developing policies and practices that routinely tell girls that they have to go to home to change their clothes in order to come to school over things like that. There's also, you know, this particular experience that um, trans girls experience when they are entering schools. Um, there's one story uh, or one uh, young woman's narrative that I include and in push out. She was transitioning in high school mm-hmm. from male to female and for her it was really difficult given the dress code um, for her to fully express herself where she was labeled a distraction um... constantly told by administrators that she didn't belong in school and you know these are ways in which we've constructed policies and and, and again a set of practices that uh, that that provide a key decision maker with an ability to turn girls away from school by how they are presenting in school, as opposed to any particular risk that they pose to uh, the safety of the school. And, and so, you know, my response to, you know, your question is really about how we come together with girls to construct new policies, how we come to understand new, um, how we come to new understandings about, you know, what is going to be perceived as uh, an, an okay yeah. you know, way to present in school. And it certainly should have nothing to do with how, uh, you know, whether a girl is wearing dreadlocks, whether a girl is wearing locks or afros, whether a girl is wearing her skirt short. I really think it's important for us to have conversations about, uh, you know, really exploring how we uplift uh, uh, a climate and how we create a climate of respect universally, not whether we can punish girls for showing up in clothes uh, that... Are reflective
0: of the weather. Wow, good, good points there. I hope a lot of uh, school administrators and policymakers think about uh, what you're describing and, and is so uh, described in the book "Push Out: The Criminalization of Black Girls in Schools." And I think what you say about involving the girls—I mean, part of the idea of education, I would think, part of the goal is to have competent uh, adults coming out of there who have a sense a good sense of themselves and can participate in the community and be part of our uh, what's left of our democracy and by leaving the the girls out and making them uh, you know just subjects of control <laughs> and and having punishment as what they see all the time. I somehow don't think that really achieves the goals that at least you and I share, and I would hope most educators uh, share. And, Monique, you talk about safety, that, you know, zero-tolerance policies, you know, you can't tolerate any of this or that. They were designed, allegedly, to keep children safe from violence in schools. How have these policies been twisted, and what are some of the results— that have come up from this uh, perhaps overly enforced zero-tolerance policy?
1: Yeah. So, you know, I, I want to say I believe that educators primarily, overwhelmingly, go into the profession because they believe in the promise of children.
0: Absolutely. So that's
1: one thing Absolutely. I think is, is critical for us to underscore in this conversation. Um, I also very much believe that we're all impacted by implicit biases about Mm -hmm. each other and about individuals that we interact with and certainly about black girls uh, in a way that we recognize and in a way that we don't recognize. So I think that, too, should be underscored in this conversation, especially when we're talking about zero tolerance and concepts around willful defiance and the impact of the increased level of surveillance in schools Mm. on black girls. So I have a chapter in the book that talks about um, you know blues for black girls when the attitude is enough, which is a play on Intisarke Shange's work uh, about uh, for color girls who've considered suicide. Right. When the rainbow is enough, and it's a way in which um, you know I I talk about how there has been this identity of black girls as having an attitude that right. almost no one can really define. Uh, it, it's probably the most subjective way in which people have a common understanding, or, or create a pseudo-common understanding about the identity of black girls, and something that I really wanted to um, better understand in this book, and also better understand in how we, uh, how we confront this issue of school push-out for our children. So, zero-tolerance policies, as you say, were constructed, I, you know, at least facially,
2: mm-hmm. to
1: really try to create a climate of safety uh, among children, but what I argue um, is that you cannot implement safety. You have to co-construct safety, which Mm. means you have to come together with the community that's impacted by the policies and practices designed to keep them safe, to understand what they need to feel safe. And in order to do that, you've got to ask them, and you have to listen to what they are telling you about their risk in order to make them safe. So... When we talk about zero-tolerance policies, really what they do is provide a set of very structured responses to uh, scenario behaviors of children that really don't leave much room for any decision-making to occur among the administrators in schools to respond to particular incidents on a case-by-case basis. If a child arrives or performs in a way that is deemed to be problematic, often the result is hyperpunitive. And the engagement with them is criminalizing. We have seen cases, um, probably the most egregious cases involving zero tolerance policies, involving young black girls, um, as young as six years old, but certainly mm. six, seven, and eight years old, where girls who have bad tantrums, quote unquote, in their school classrooms, are placed in handcuffs or arrested. Um, and you know, mm. you know, it's, it's very interesting to me, uh. Uh, both as a, you know, a, an educator and as a mother. You know, a six-year-old, a seven-year-old can throw a mean tantrum, (laughs) and that to me is not grounds for criminalization of facing a child in handcuffs. It's grounds for us to engage with that girl to better understand what she needs to be calm and how to center herself so that she can recover.
2: Hmm. The
1: way in which we've constructed a threat to safety um, is really very much informed by how we understand aggression and how we respond to uh, or, or fail to rather the the trauma and victimization and and other forms of violence being inflicted among girls in a way that might facilitate them having uh, a very you know sort of hyperactive um, reaction to something that might might require that they take a moment to get themselves centered and we don't provide that space for them to heal in those ways often in our schools, we provide instead uh, you know these these very reactive um, punishment oriented interactions that only facilitate violence later on one of the things that is very stark to me is the way in which you know black girls are 16% of
2: girls right, but
1: right. they're 42% of girls experiencing corporal punishment Oof. and you know we respond to their actions with violence corporal punishment and mm-hmm. then wonder where they learned it later right. on in life when they're engaging in violent behaviors <sighs> in schools i know uh, we taught it to them so it's important for us to think about all of these ways in which our common cultures have uh really been uplifting violence as a response and punishment as a response to uh problematic behavior, to victimization, to um, you know, other forms of violence that girls are uniquely impacted by. Mm. So what we've seen, you know, I, I one of the things that I say is that zero tolerance policies were really not constructed with black girls in mind. It was mm. really about trying to uh, you know, respond to other forms of violence Um, that uh, were largely about weapons, uh, largely about physical aggression, and yet, you know, black girls became the fastest-growing population to experience school suspensions and expulsions, largely because what was happening is that uh, our, our construction of a climate that was about zero tolerance became also about a culture about regulating student behavior in a way that allowed for adults to subjectively read when a child was being defiant or when a child was failing to comply or uh, you know adhere to rules and our response to rule-breaking uh, grew to be uh, about more about punishment and exclusion from school than it was about really teaching them why those mm. rules were in place in the first place mm. mm-hmm. and engaging them in conversations about developing those rules so that they have buy-in and appreciate um, what it is that the school is trying to accomplish—to you know, again, generate a safe climate for all to learn—and so uh, you know, I think our failures to engage young people in making these connections and for the parents to be involved in conversations about why these systems or, or, or policies are in place has really deteriorated um, under zero tolerance policies, and um, you know, that's something for us to again further explore.
0: Boy, very, very thought-provoking here. The the goals of education, I, I would think, again, and, and teachers, you know, they, they work hard. They're largely underpaid, I think, and they only have limited tools to deal with. And I can't help but think that a lot of the zero tolerance perhaps may have been uh, put in place by, uh, you know, politicians looking tough on crime. And we've seen so often uh what you know that has done, the old three strikes you're out and, and looking tough on crime has just resulted in a, a mass incarceration system. And we're talking about uh black girls who, you know, have a, being able to participate in decision making and and you know, that's just I would think. So important. Very, very uh, thought provoking. My sense, Monique Morris, you put a lot of time and energy into this. Tell tell us about, uh, I mean, you really know your stuff here. How long did it take you to do this research and and to come out with that? And then and then to know when the the book was uh, was finished. It's a, a very impressive project, I have to say.
1: I've been uh, dealing with this issue for quite a long time. Um, I, the first book I wrote was a novel, was a street novel, that looked at prostitution. Mm. And in the course of talking about that issue, uh, I w- went into different juvenile detention facilities. Uh, I started my career in juvenile justice research and education. And uh, when I, I started to go in and out of facilities and talking to young people, I noticed that the girls were getting younger and that they were mm. in there uh, for... Uh, quote unquote offenses <laughs> that were really about their victimization, um, commercial sexual exploitation, sexual victimization in homes yes. and in communities and in schools, and um, that their education was not you know being centered in a way that I felt was most appropriate given what we know about again this protective factor um, that it plays in reducing contact with the juvenile legal system and so you know the the I would say you know really my my work in this space and in this domain began then, um, really beginning to respond to why it is that we were seeing an increasing number of girls entering the juvenile legal system and, uh, you know, this way in which we were not necessarily exploring and understanding what black girls were experiencing in schools, black girls, they've said 12 to 17. Um, I have since then, you know, been engaged in various conversations about equity and justice and. Have centered, you know, women and girls in my work uh, professionally through the National Black Women's Justice Institute for sure. But even before then, in my other spaces, I'm looking at the barriers to employment for formerly incarcerated women. Really looking again from the population that is most at risk of school pushout. Really looking at the population most at risk of contact with the juvenile and criminal legal system, and understanding if we can respond to their conditions, then we can improve society for everyone. <laughs> and so I think, you know, for me, this has really been, um, you know, certainly a labor of love, but also mm. a, a, an opportunity for us to just revisit. Um, you know, one of the things that I say to my, I've said to my grad students <laughs> is really, you know, the, the, the culture... Of the thinking person is revision. We have to continue to explore. We have to continue to think through these issues. We can't say we figured it out and now moving on.
2: Mm, mm. We have
1: to continue to interrogate issues, particularly as they impact, you know, various populations that are most at risk. I don't believe in throwaway children. I don't believe Mm. in throwaway people. So it's really important for us then to center those who have been thrown away or whose experiences have been disregarded And to work backwards from that. And that's essentially what I'm doing with Push Out. I went straight to the girls who had been pushed out, the Mm -hmm. girls who had been, uh, failed by their educational and juvenile criminal legal systems, who had been failed by their families and communities, who had been failed by all of us in ways that to me were unconscionable. And Mm so going to those girls, talking to them about their experiences, as well as talking to the educators that work with them, the, uh, the uh, individuals who are trying to respond to those conditions, I think gives us a better idea of how we can improve the rigor with which we engage these conversations about equity and justice and school performance and the idea that every student can succeed. You know, we use a lot of language in our society and in our policy about equity and about everyone being included, and yet we still engage in practices that exclude those that we deem unworthy Mm. and that to me is really at the center of this conversation is no one is unworthy (laughs) we must make sure that we have constructed environments that are responsive the most responsive that they can be to the trauma and victimization experienced by children to the ways in which we have misread and misinterpreted identities and the ways in which our policies are failing to respond uh... in a way that is necessary and that can be done um, you know, yes. one of the the important ways in which I approach this work is through a lens of repair. We can repair the relationship mm-hmm. both between the individuals that are involved in this conversation about school pushout, but also between the girls and the institutions that are responsible for educating them. And you know, we do that by constructing new spaces for us to explore. You know, the connections that we've been talking about. You know, today and to really begin to talk about how we can envision a school that achieves equity. What does equitable school look like for girls? What needs to be in place to make sure that black girls at least have a space where they are received as a whole person and not as a caricature or a stereotype Mm -hmm. where their voices are not seen as a front to authority but rather reflective of their critical thinking? And then work from that. (laughs) That's what I'm I'm, I'm really trying to get at in all of this work. Um, My collective body of work prior to Push Out as well as, you know, certainly with all the work that uh, is is accompanying for shot and beyond.
0: Wow, and you know what you're talking about here. It it just uh, uh, it's it's so powerful to me to realize. I mean that of course everybody is worthwhile, and that is what I think. You know, a republican form of government with a small R, a democracy, is based on. We all get to participate. And I've thought for years and years. No matter what, if it's a, a workplace, a factory, anything, people have to feel like they are part of it. They, you know, they're not just machines. They're treated decently. They can make it all better, and and participate in it. And everybody makes out better when people feel like they're part of it. When people, as you say, are pushed out, what the heck good does that do? It's only destructive. It it cannot do any good. And one of the things when I when I put a little uh, promotion of this on my Facebook site, uh, as you noticed, Monique, it it kind of shook me up i have to say when i pointed out the uh the fact that black girls make up 16 percent of the population and yet uh get uh over more than a third of the girls uh are of school related arrest are the same black girls this person wrote in well they're more violent i i just th- <laughs> that that blew me away well i have to are say. Not.
1: Of course not. <laughs> but to I mean, think that... You know, I, I laugh, but it's actually not funny. Oh, it's terrible. The, um, you know, the, the identity of black girls, again, has really been misinterpreted and misconstrued and misrepresented in the public domain, yes. where individuals see their behaviors as, quote-unquote, antisocial, quote-unquote, violent, quote-unquote, aggressive. And what they fail to see are the structures of violence in which Absolutely. they are being reared, in which all of us really... Are being socialized, yes. and that our responses, the ways in which we are priming black girls for their own victimization, the ways in which our uh, our systems, um, education being one of them, but our multiple systems interact yes. in a way that reproduce this violence, is you know really what's at stake here, really what's you know, at the center of our discussion here. Um, you know, the we talk, I talked uh, already with you a bit about just how. People read the behaviors of black girls as more violent than their counterparts, where girls can have tantrums uh, and be perceived as a threat to public safety or girls can you know, engage in loud talk or loud speak in the hallways and uh, be punished as a result. But it doesn't always play out that way. You know, and again, people tend to think, oh, well, they're experiencing suspensions and expulsions because they're fighting. And fighting is a part of it, just as it is for all kids. Yeah. There are kids in every school who engage in some kind of altercation. Um, but what's happening disproportionately with black girls is there's a response to their elevated voices, there's a response to their expressions of, of uh, you know, response to oppression, um, their responses to victimization that are not read as responses to victimization <laughs> and oppression. They're read simply as violence. Right, right. And so, you know, for for that reason, in this discussion about school pushout, I center pretty in, intently and intentionally the conversation about sexual harm and victimization that's occurring um, and intimate partner violence that's occurring in the lives of these girls. Yeah. Because those girls who are most at risk of pushout and who are most at risk of Uh, failing to complete school are girls who are experiencing these things. And it's our silence on their victimization that is producing this increased rate of of, uh, engagement in in problematic school behaviors. And so if we begin to work backwards again and stop spending so much time labeling um, our girls and really (laughs) victim-blaming the girls without responding to the conditions that are facilitating both their actions and our reactions to their responses to their own victimization, then we're not going to get anywhere in this conversation. So, you know, to me, the challenge here is to you know, again establish new frameworks and new ways of understanding, mm. um, you know, what we do to produce healing-informed responses to our girls, um, all of our girls. Looking at healing responses, healing-informed responses when they get in trouble. So that there are, you know, restorative opportunities or bridge programs for girls, mm. um, you know, that have had contact with the juvenile legal system. Establishing greater partnerships between schools and service providers, but also really looking at um, responsive and de-biased learning. So understanding that, um, you know, that girls of color, particularly Black girls, are responding to implicit bias and yes. they're responding to cultural forms of oppression um, that are coupled with some of the physical acts of uh, objectification and victimization that they're experiencing and that we have to respond to these root causes and respond to our understandings about these root causes um, in order for us to facilitate new options for them to facilitate the college and career pathways to facilitate the healing informed uh, classrooms and schools that allow for them to be proactive learners um, about all aspects of their life and so you know, I think you know there are varying degrees of consciousness about this issue. Part of the reason I wrote this book and have these conversations about interrupting school-to-confinement pathways is precisely um, in response to that kind of consciousness that is so quick to say, "Well, these girls get into trouble because they're just more violent," right. and that is absolutely wrong. What they are is more prone to respond to the multiple forms of oppression that they are experiencing in their lives, and what they are doing. Is demonstrating for us that there, there is a problem and yeah. that is what we need to be responding to again if we believe that there are no throwaway children then we have to respond to the root causes and better understand their victimization in this space
0: all right well schools have to have you know some decorum uh, it has to be a learning environment if students are you know discipline problems or create problems uh, what what is a better approach to it other than what we've been doing so far what what do you do i mean if you have an individual kid i mean you can look to the to the roots to to deal with it sociologically and in many ways which is extremely important obviously but so how you know an individual girl what would a, a good uh a settlement of of a discipline problem be how how would you paint that uh, picture what have you seen that works
1: yeah, I think it's important for us to understand that what I'm saying here is not is exactly what you're saying, it, which is we do absolutely need constructive learning spaces, and how we go about getting those constructive learning spaces is not about punishing children and kicking them out of class. That really, the places that are having the mm. um, you know greatest success with student achievement as well as with student accountability around problematic behaviors are those institutions, those schools that have a full continuum of responses, uh, you know, that are tied to, um, you know, young people understanding what harm has been committed, uh, you know, what their needs are, and who is obligated to respond to those needs. That is typically understood in, in our learning spaces as restorative practices or restorative justice or restorative paradigms in schools. There are, you know, a couple of, Ways in which people constructed. I talk about it just in terms of it being healing work, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and yeah. that you know is a very old concept, but it's one that is being implemented in many schools. Again, you know, not every school has a security guard, not every school has you know a law enforcement school resource officer or has metal detectors. That sure. these are more likely to be in places where there is a perception of that the appropriate response to student problematic behavior is discipline and punishment, right. and so. You know what has been, um, you know, used in spaces has been the positive behavioral interventions and the restorative practices and mindfulness and student-led peer uh, processes that really provide opportunities for young people to play a role in their own uh, structure setting around accountability and responses when there is a problem. And then, you know, there are just the ways in which the adults communicate with young people. One of the you know things that came out to me in the process of researching this topic is really that when educators understand that they have to teach more than the commi- more than the curriculum to enter mm. the school space understanding their role and function as building positive relationships with young people mm. that that's when the young people respond most favorably mm. and in those places sure. that there is not a strong student teacher relationship or where you know girls in particular black girls in particular um perceive there to not be a strong student teacher relationship or a caring teacher in their life, regardless of that teacher's race or ethnicity. That's the place where you know they are are are, are having the most trouble. They need to have uh, you know this consistent relationship in place. They've got to understand and feel that the educators in their lives are there to teach them and to educate them and believe in them mm. not that they are there to collect a check and don't actually believe that they are poss- that they that they have the possibility to be anything great <laughs> and you know the one thing you know that I'll just say at this moment is you know black girls are not unlike other girls in that regard right or other children in that regard all children want to feel loved yes. and for some reason mm. we forget that in some t- in some of these policy discussions that really you know, when people ask me, you know, what is your most radical recommendation, unfortunately, my most radical recommendation for how to shift this is that we need to lead with love. Wow. It's not rocket science. <laughs> it's, what we have, it's what we should know how to do. So, and yet, so much of how we're leading is with punishment,
2: hmm. with discipline,
1: as opposed to with love. And the girls feel this. And they feel it in judgment. They feel it in practice. And so it's really something that I think can be co-constructed from the very beginning. We're closing the school year, but as we enter conversations about the fall, there's an opportunity for us to say, okay, how will I structure my schools? How will I structure my conversations with parents? How will I structure my conversations with my students in a way that allows for us to say, how do we need to feel safe? What do we need to feel safe and present so that we all can learn? And that's where we start this conversation. That you don't, you shouldn't have to wait till college or grad school to start having these kinds of conversations. It hmm. can happen and are happening in many schools. We, I want them to be in more schools.
0: Boy, I would say so. Uh, if you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is keeping democracy alive. Our guest is Monique W. Morris, co-founder of the National Black Women's Justice Center, and her new book is "Push Out: The Criminalization of Black Girls in School." And as you were describing, I was. I never could figure out. I went to high school a very long time ago, and I could never figure out kids that behave badly are expelled. What the heck kind of message does that send? I mean, does that make them better? It, it only plays into their hands, I think, and just it gives them such a bad message, and it's gone on for a long time. And, and the word a dropout is typically understood as a person who has him or herself made a decision to leave school, that school is not for him or her. You actually challenge this definition. Tell us about that, please.
1: Yes, I think you know advocates um, in the school dignity space have been have you know for the past several years replaced the word dropout with pushout, and you know the idea here is that a child does not wake up and say, oh, "Okay, I'm just not going to school." You know, there have to be a set of conditions that actively right. push a child away from school. Sometimes those conditions are school-located, and sometimes those conditions are community-located, and sometimes those conditions are combinations of of multiple locations, of a child feeling that she or he is not being well-served in school. And, uh, you know, one of the the reasons I use this term, uh, as well as the term criminalization, as opposed to addressing mass incarceration or prison the way that people typically understand this issue, because i want to challenge us to really think about again the ways in which as adults we are not responding to the root causes affecting this decision making and affecting these behaviors among children and in particular the ways in which we're not responding to the needs of black girls who are disproportionately overrepresented among those who are uh, historically understood to be dropouts um... and the ways in which we are not responding to the set of conditions, the exclusionary discipline, the suspensions, expulsions, corporal punishment, etc., mm. that are rendering them vulnerable to both contact with the juvenile legal system yes. and vulnerable to not completing school. And it's in that space that we you know, I think, as I was saying earlier, begin to understand what policies and practices need to better serve all of our kids. Yeah. It's been really interesting to me as I've been talking about this issue across the country and meeting with different communities that while, you know, I've certainly visited several cities to um, research push-out, uh, you know, mm-hmm. that there are ways in which girls in various communities, whether they are perceived as high performers or not, are experiencing degrees of this. There are girls who come up to me and say, well, I'm actually in school, but I'm experiencing push-out. I'm just still here. And so there's this way mm-hmm. in which we've constructed the... Uh, Uh, successes of black girls as being an indication of their well-being when in fact it's an indication of their resilience. Mm. And I want to make sure that in our conversations as we are talking about constructing learning environments, even as we're talking about closing one school year to rest and prepare for a new school year, that we're really thinking about how to make this space an active, uh, engaging learning space for all of our children, not a place where some kids have to be more resilient than others. Wow. That is not an appropriate space to learn. That's a hostile learning environment. And so <laughs> we've got to think about how we're constructing curriculum, how we're constructing norms, how we're constructing responses to student behaviors in a way, again, that allows for us to see when girls who are most at risk of school push-out are experiencing commercial sexual victimization, for example, or when girls who are at risk of school push-out are not just fighting because they're problematic kids, but responding to a structure and system of oppression or a series of their own victimization that they just don't know how to handle, but that with conversation, restorative practices, and ways of engaging in mindfulness and other therapeutic responses to their healing, they could, too, be positive, well-performing, high-performing students. This, this is what I'm after. <laughs> I think we've got to really think through and understand how critical a function education is, and not to treat it as some sort of secondary place where we just sort of send our kids for the day, (laughs) but to really think about the role that it plays in mitigating conditions of poverty in the lives of girls, to giving them the tools they need to respond to the multiple structures of oppression that they have historically experienced and that they are, in many cases, currently experiencing, and to center girls in their own conversation about why they should be in school and why they should care. There's an appendix that I have that is a conversation with girls uh, in the book, uh, as well as with parents and community members and educators. Um, It's a collection of common questions that I get um, in this conversation. And the first one is for girls. And it's really about, like, why should I care about school? A lot of times people think girls don't. But in my research, they do care. They just don't know how to make it work for them. Hmm. And so that, to me, is where we start. How do we get girls, how do we get kids to understand that school is a place for them, that they can learn, that everyone can learn, every single person can learn, and that we owe it to them and that we owe it to ourselves to ensure that we're investing in their well-being so that they can overcome these obstacles in their lives and that we can build communities, again, that are strong and that provide them with the tools they need to be uh, well people. And and that's ultimately what
0: this is about. And, you know, I I, I occasionally run into people who say, well, I don't have any kids in school. What do I care? And what you're describing is exactly why we should all care. It affects all of us. It affects who we are as as a people and uh, what we can do about this. How are your uh, suggestions being received by uh, school administrators and and educators in general? Are, Are people picking this up, I hope? Do they feel like... Perhaps, well, they can't do anything because they don't have the resources. How, how is this being received in the, uh, you know, educational administrators' community?
1: Well, I think, you know, there are a couple of measures that I have for that. There are certainly the people who reach out to me directly. Um, I've been in partnership with several districts uh, to talk to them about some of the policies and uh, practices that they have in place, um, and it's been favorable. Uh, there's a lot of reflection, I think, happening right now where uh, educators uh, that expressed to me in community conversations as well as on social media that this work is just... Um, and, and it's, it's allowing them to reflect upon their own practices and understandings and that's a really strong beginning, I think. Um, you know, my hope is to establish a set of tools for schools such that not everyone has to reach out to me directly, <laughs> but that they can certainly begin to pick up some structured decision-making tools and instruments and opportunities to explore uh, alternatives to how they've been engaging um, with black girls and understanding black girls um, so that we can continue this conversation because it certainly wasn't constructed overnight and won't be resolved overnight uh... but i do think you know that the feedback that i'm getting from educators from teachers from administrators all the way up to the superintendents of various districts that have reached out to me because they've both been noticing an issue in their districts Mm -hmm. and in their classrooms with girls black girls in particular and also really want to respond to this again I really believe educators are in this work because, oh, you know, yeah. as you mentioned earlier, they don't get paid a lot of money, no. typically. They're in this because they believe in the promise of children. That's certainly why I started teaching. I believe in investing in the learning and well-being of our young people and, and those who want to be learners um, and explore this issue uh, further. And it's really, you know, I think, important for us to understand that as we talk to teachers and with teachers um, in preparing them to be stronger school leaders and responders to our children, and so you know, I'm hopeful that the conversations will continue. I'm doing some oh, yeah. things over the summer with teachers, um, and with administrators, and with uh, districts that I hope will continue this conversation about how we explore and support uh, you know learning spaces for girls, uh, for Black girls in particular, uh, and, and uh, you know, I'm, I'm I'm hopeful. I remain hopeful in that space.
0: I always have to be hopeful here. As a uh, liberal Democrat in New Hampshire, one has to be kind of an optimist. Otherwise, <laughs> you, you couldn't make it. You know, a challenge, But I think this is a very interesting time. I sense real history at this particular moment, that we're learning uh, what you're talking about and, and, and recognizing what the goals may be and, and recognizing that, as you say, we have to revise as we go along. We have to listen to new ideas and recognize sometimes, you know, if you keep doing this same thing over and over again, and it still doesn't work, you got to change it. Fascinating subject, very, very well researched, very important subject. The book is Push Out, The Criminalization of Black Girls in Schools. Thank you so much, Monique Morris, for being with us on Keeping Democracy Alive. Uh, Great, great luck with uh, pushing ahead with this. It's such important work. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you so much. I'm not a juvenile delinquent. Thank you.